Thank you, Alex. A tough act to follow. Um, I've got nearly as many pictures. I have slightly more numbers, but um, how much bit do I look at? Do I press? Is this that? Just does it, does it? Um, I think I was meant to be the the non-case study after two speakers giving you case studies. So I'm afraid I'm like 50, you get 50% non-case studies. Um, those of you who've got um, is this, no, this isn't one. Hang on, that one. That's it. Um, those of you who um, have young children may have recently been to see the Lego movie, uh, which has an incredibly annoying uh, song in it called Everything is Awesome, uh, which is one of those songs that is simultaneously appalling but deeply, deeply catchy, which has been rattling around in my head for the last few weeks. And I'm the unpopular man at some talks like this who comes along and says everything isn't quite awesome. There are a few things actually which we're not doing right. So um, if I offend or uh, criticise anything that any of you or your friends or colleagues have done, I apologise in advance. Uh, offence is, uh, is not the intention. Um, but everything isn't quite awesome. Um, let me just, I'm going to clip through this, uh, I don't know if it was on. Just to remind you of the context, we are in a very, 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 very strange situation in the UK where house prices have gone up in real terms from £29,000 30 years ago to over nearly 10 times that, and that number's, that number's out of date. Um, you've probably seen some of the data of what would happen to the price of a chicken or a loaf of bread if the same had happened. It would basically be you know, twice the average weekly shop. That is a very strange context for the UK, which is, you know, there's almost no other country in the world that has the same context. So you know, there's some of the, the numbers on that. And that is the background to estate regeneration, to the pressure on, uh, uh, on housing in London, which is it has got insanely, ludicrously expensive because supply is so constrained. Um, I'll nip through that, those are some numbers, but well, sorry, this, I don't think it's going to do this all the way through, let's find out. Um, so that's sort of the background. The immediate context, and actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to walk away from this for two seconds, um, it's even more live than that. Um, for those of you who weren't able to um, read through all, um, uh, all uh, 200 pages of the budget, uh, there's quite an important announcement on page, I've actually written the page down here, on page 40, I think, um, uh, which is that uh, the Chancellor is creating, or has created, a 150 million fund to seed fund estate regeneration with a real focus on the long term. Now, that's not a huge amount of money, but actually, if it only goes to four or five estates, it, it can quite materially changes what goes on. Um, come back to my little points at the end there. So that's the uh, immediate context. And actually, it's particularly relevant for those of you who haven't read your evening standard cover to cover. On page eight, uh, Eric Pickles has literally today announced a study by Savills into how that should be used and to what estate regeneration, how it should be configured, how radical it should be, how street-based it should be. So, you know, this is an incredibly live issue, and literally to, to, to the hour almost. Um, we're very pleased with that. We argued strongly that this approach with a very strong financial approach as to the long-term returns, not the short-term returns, should be dominating estate regeneration. The reason the government is obviously interested in this, these are indicative figures. Um, it isn't actually quite clear, we're currently trying to calculate, uh, how many dwellings were created in big estate creation post-war. Um, we think it's about 350,000 in London. That, that number may be wrong. Um, depending on what assumptions you make about what density increase are possible off the back of that, our mid-range estimate is that if you were to regenerate sorry, estates into, in, in, uh, in London, just into the rest of London, just into normal dense streets, so not sort of Bromley, but sort of Pimlico-style typology, you'd get about a quarter of a million additional units. That's enough supply to take us up for the best part of the next 10 years, to about 2020. Okay, so that's why this is such a live issue. That's why, I guess, we're all here. Um, with that background, 
I'd like to make the case for quite radical estate regeneration. Um, I thought, Alex, what you were showing was fantastic and inspiring, but I would almost argue one can go further. Um, I apologise if what are some of what I say you know. Um, lots of people don't. I'm sure you're a much better informed audience than most, so uh, uh, bear with me. Just to remind you, uh, all the data, every single data point in the UK uh, from polling shows that street-based typologies are more popular. Depending on who you ask, how you ask it, what context, which subset you ask it, the numbers vary. But basically, I defy you to find a poll which has a number which is lower than 70-something percent, and you can find polls which are up to 90-something percent. The normal one seems to be about between 80 and 89. That seems to be the median point for people's preference living either in a house or in a smaller type of tower block. The UK is slightly discrepant on this, but not very. The, um, the latest national poll, which is the one in the bottom right, um, did have a comparison to the rest of Europe and to Turkey. From memory, Turkey was the... The, the one where living in apartments was the most popular, but maybe it was double that, but it wasn't more than that. Um, and I think Belgium was the, most, the second most popular amongst, sort of, if you like, the, the continental European countries. But uh, UK is at one end, but it's not discrepantly so. So most people, most of the time, prefer to live in smaller buildings nearer the ground. That's just a fact. Um, hang on, let's, let's do this. Um, and that's been true for many years. Um, now, perhaps I'm going to get more contentious. I'd say that streets are far more socially just as well. Um, let's just focus on that, that dark bullet point there. And I think, again, I've got silly pictures here. Let's get rid of them. Um, if you are a child in the census that was done ten, ten years ago, we don't have the data from, from three years yet. If you are a child living in social housing today, you are 16 times more likely to live on or above the fifth floor than if you're a child living in private, owner-occupied or private rented housing. I don't think you look shocked enough. That is a staggering figure. That shows an enormous discrepancy between what people who can afford to choose choose and what people who cannot afford to choose do not choose. Um, streets are good for you as well. Now, I'm not an architectural determinist, but all the data over the last 40 years, or sorry, that's not quite true, 40 out of the 42 uh, statistically relevant or peer-reviewed data points we've managed to find show a clear correlation, even when you adjust for socioeconomic status, between good social outcomes and living in what I'd broadly call in smaller buildings nearer the ground. Um, I mean, these are just studies picked among the many, but one of the earliest ones, which was a study done in the 1960s uh, of uh, UK uh, mothers, military families, so again, to get social equality, so you're not comparing rich to poor, um, showed a very clear uh, discrepancy in the rates of neurosis, going to doctor, mental health problems. Um, data over many years from many countries show that uh, mothers of children are much happier and more content living in houses near the ground, but the children have fewer behavioural problems. Uh, there's data from the UK, from Israel, from America, from Canada, from Italy, from memory, showing very clear correlations which go beyond any density change between living in big units and the amount of antisocial behaviour and crime. You're probably all aware of some of the US data from 30 years ago. That's been repl replicating data from this country and from others. So the data on this is incredibly strong. And what I found, the reason I got into this, frankly, um, I just got interested in this because I, I live quite near the Ellsbury. Um, and I saw they were starting to knock something down about four years ago. And I just got curious as to what they were replacing it with and just started reading about it. And when I saw what they were doing, I thought, hmm, that looks not that different at one sense from what's there before. What's the data on this? 
What do, what do people like? What's good for them? What can we actually provably say? Not, nothing's talking about design, it's about, it's about typology. So, um, actually, you know, people are quite rational. The reason I love having this game sometimes with architects when they say they like this type of stuff and you ask them where they live, um, I won't do that today, but um, the reason that most people, not all, but most people who can afford to choose, choose to live in smaller buildings near the ground is actually because the data is that tends to be things that leads to more contented lives and outcomes. Um, there's great data on happiness. Um, these are probably the three drivers. I would decide put more speculatively. Um, it's clear from the data that bringing up kids is harder in big buildings, and that, 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 is, that is, I think, is, is now widely known in the design community. Um, number two is interesting. Um, one of my favourite pieces of research in this, uh, there's some work done in the US in the early 80s. A lot of work on this is quite old, I'd be the, I'd be the first to admit. I'm currently trying to get funding to do more. Um, where they left wallets, stamped addressed envelopes, and made requests for charitable donations in different student halls of residence. Different size, different heights from the ground. You can probably guess where this is going. There was an inverse correlation between the height at which the students were living from the ground and the size of the building in which they were living and their propensity to return the wallet, post the stamps addressed envelope, or make the uh, donation to a charity. Um, there are many studies that show that people feel less sense of community and know their neighbours, other than sometimes their very immediate neighbours, less well when they live in bigger buildings. And that's true, again, in many countries. The US one is the only one, the US study is the only one that actually shows that in terms of behaviour. It's a piece of research I'm very keen to, to replicate. Um, and crime, again, as I think, uh, Alex, as you uh, alluded to, it's incredibly good data that those are more for semi-private, semi-public spaces in many cities over many years are the areas where crime is materially higher than in private or in properly public, properly overlooked space, um, which is partially picked up in the current rules. So streets are a good idea. Streets are practical as well, and that is probably unreadable. Um, the key, key point on that, I'd say, is that managing... Uh, managing public realm costs a lot of money and it's easy to kid yourselves that you can do it better this time than before but it still costs a lot of money I defy anyone to find a data point that it doesn't cost you between 50 and 100% more to manage a building in the long run I had a, I won't say who, but I had a two hour meeting with one of the biggest uh, well, one of the chairman of one of the, the biggest housing groups in the country just before Easter um, where we ended up agreeing was that he sort of couldn't quite get around the point that the management fees were much higher and that actually made the economics much harder in the long term. And there is no way around that. You can design it better, but if you've got a large amount of public realm, particularly semi-private public realm, that you need to manage and keep clean and look after, you are going to spend more money. Street self-police. Um, and also, obviously, the cost of maintaining a building that is bigger, that is higher from the ground potentially, gets exponentially higher because the sheer technology required is greater. Um, I'll quote some Savile's research in a moment. This is some simpler research that, that we've done. We've looked at long-term Halifax price data in London and in every region of the UK. Um, off the scale clear uh, that places which are, if you like, more conventionally designed in more conventional typologies have gone up in value in the long term at over twi well, about, twi about twice the rate of, if you like, less, on the whole, less conventionally designed areas and types of building. Um, that's true, I think I'm right in saying, in every single region in the UK, across every matrix we've done. If it's not everyone, it's very nearly everyone. Um, Savile's research, which I think I've got to, yeah, shows something similar. This was done on a more uh, micro scale, a deep dive look at Buckinghamshire, uh, Dorset, Scotland, three developments there, where they showed very clearly that the value generated, in not in quite the same long term, about six years, per square foot um, and per hectare, was greater in a 
what they call standard, I don't like this type of phraseology, but if you like, in a very conventional style streetscape. Um, again, just referring back to the evening stand-in announcement today, um, someone's desperate to join. Um, uh, I noticed that Savills has been commissioned to look at what should be done on uh, estate regeneration, so I'm hoping some of that insight is, uh, is going to go into that. Um, I'll cut through that. Um, this is just using some space syntax work that I'm sure you are all familiar with, um, but I think you know, the key insight that comes from their research is that the streets that are best connected consistently and often exponentially have more value than the streets that aren't, which is why that actually you know, the most valuable streets and the most valuable parts of London are often the ones that are one off the high street. Um, now, let's get to density. And you all know this, this report, everyone, everyone who's an urban designer or architect knows this one. Um, but the, and I guess it comes back to what I said at the beginning as well. If we were to you know, take some of the estates that Alex was looking at and many of the others and literally just replace them with Pimlico, you would be taking up the density by a vast amount. And we wouldn't, I wouldn't say solve forever because that's a big statement, but you would solve for a generation the housing crisis that London currently faces. And we're not currently doing that. Come to that in a moment. Um, right, now I might get more controversial. Um, combination of London and UK regulation makes it incredibly hard to do this. Um, the streets that we're currently building, because we, we, you know, we see that some of the estate regeneration of the building does have streets in it, they are far, they're typically far less typologically efficient than the streets that were being built a, a generation, perhaps three generations ago. Uh, a large number of well-intentioned rules um, mean that we build the type of house, if you like, in the left there, um, which for lifetime home standards uh, is much more horizontal, uh, has far lower density per, per, per hectare, and then in order to make the density targets, which the London Plan insists on, in anywhere other than a suburban area, in order to get to those density targets, you therefore need to do the type of big multi-storey building, and you can see, there, this is the Ellsbury Estate, uh, you can see on the right the one from the 1970s, and on the, one, on the left the one uh, from 2013. Um, so we are doing a denser version, in many ways, of what was done before. We tend to be putting stuff around it, but we are, and come, come to this in a moment, uh, so let's cut through that. Um, now, what we did, and I've deliberately turned this small because I don't want to criticise individual schemes. And I'm not criticising because people are rationally responding, often very beautifully, to the, uh, to the criteria they're given. Um, we had a look at 18 uh, live or recent either estate regenerations or big developments. They're not all pure estate regenerations. The average increase in density is 170%, which means you're pushing beyond, often, not quite always, but off, you know, beyond what a conventional streetscape can hold. Uh, the average increase in height is 227%. And again, that's because you're pushing up into the 10, 12, 13 or higher stories. Um, of the ones we looked at, there are others. Only one development, the Packington, didn't have anything over 10 stories. So the, the, uh, the neighbourhood actually asked for nothing higher than eight, and they, they got higher than eight. Um, and obviously, you, you all know the, uh, the work that the NLA have done on the number of towers currently being built in London. That's obviously typically not a state regeneration. So we, you know, we're, we're building something we've not built before. I mean, it's closest to what we were building 50 years ago, but we are building uh, something that is not like historical London. It can look like historical London. It looks a lot nicer than what was done 50 years ago. It tends to have a brick veneer. But in terms of sheer massing and scale, in terms of the number of units per stairwell, in terms of the number of 
perhaps people in affordable social housing, we're putting in big blocks. There's a scheme I, it's not yet public, I was looking at the other day, um, which is going to have about 90, is it 90 or 86, I forget, but you know, just, just shy of 100 people in social housing in the, off the same stairwell. Um, there's another development not far from the ones I was showing you earlier, um, which has slightly fewer, um, is off something that is certainly not a street. Um, if I was Alex to stand on your shoulders, I could get access to the first floor and then I'd have the run of the whole place. It's largely social housing in that block. It won a prize. So here's my Cassandra-style nature. Everything is not, I'm afraid, quite awesome. There are great architects, great urban planners doing great work. I'm sure many of you in the room today. Uh, I don't think the, 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 the shit... The, the land values have got so intensely, so insanely high, and the rules are such that it is very hard to do good work. I and mean, I think many people are doing great work in the framework, but it's hard to do. Um, but I'm fair to pick on this. Actually, in many ways, this is kind of a pretty scheme, but this is to show you how we're taking, if you like, uh, one set of uh, blocks from 70 years ago and just replacing them with bigger blocks. So let's not kid ourselves that what we're doing here is building something that is like the rest of London. We're really not. Um, now, at the moment, Crime levels are at a 30-year low, and they continue to go down, which is great. So hopefully I'll be wrong. Hopefully people say we can manage it better, we can design it better, we can design out stuff. Maybe they'll be proved right. But the onus is on them, because what we're doing isn't how most people who can afford to choose, choose to live. Um, just Have I got a few more minutes? Am I OK to go for a bit more? Okay. Um, here is the Ellsbury. And the, the reason I pick on it is just because I live nearby, so it's easy, it's easy to pick on. Um, and I'm also picking on it because the, the new scheme isn't yet public, so this is in no way criticising what is currently being done. It is criticising the Area Action Plan of five years ago. Um, there's the Ellsbury on the left, and as you can see, and as I'm sure many of you know, it's incredibly low density, 115 units per hectare, people take. Um, big blocks, big open spaces between it, all the stuff that Alex was elegantly talking about, unloved, unused space. Um, when someone was murdered in, I think, the second from the left there about four, three years ago, the body lay undiscovered for about 48 hours, which I think says all you need to say um, about how effectively the space works. Um, if we could fly up 1,000 miles and come down again and put Pimlico there, um, we would well, actually, the, uh, we would have slightly more, I think, the numbers are a little bit vague, a little bit high level, slightly more than 50% more dwellings. I'm not at the 170% increase, that we're currently doing in Agra, but still a considerable step up. Um, we could rehouse everyone, we could absolutely fund it, we've done the numbers on it. What you couldn't do, and I've run the cash flows on this, what you couldn't do is get a 20% return in seven years, which is what a developer would currently ask you to do. But if you believe, and I accept you can't know the future, if you believe that the value of that would do the same as the value of things that are similarly well connected and look and feel a bit similar in the next 30 years to the last 30 years, and if you've got a 30-year investment framework, not a five-year or a six-year investment framework, you make an absolute bloody killing. But you can't do it in five years. And that's why, because, because the land values are so high, because the length of investment window is so short, because the framework, because the, 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 the level set is so high, and because the rules make it hard to build Pimlico right now, you couldn't build that now. You would literally fail test after test after test. I'm lucky enough to live in a tall, a tall classically Georgian you know, terraced house, London style. My, my house fails the current rules on at least 13 points, and probably more that I haven't found. Um, here's what is being planned um, four or five years ago. Um, it doesn't go massively higher density than, than, than Pimlico, it does go higher. But in order to get to the density, because it is replicating a high proportion of the green space in the current site, it has to put a series of big blocks facing the park. 
Now, the current, actually, that is actually the current, the, uh, that is the current plan, not, not the 2010 action plan, that picture there, which I, I make no comment on. But the one that was done five years ago, I'm going to step away from this, oh, no, I've got to, how do I press get the arrow? What do I do to get the red uh, thing? Top one. top one. There we go, just I stay by this. So what was in the area action plan four or five years ago, in order to get a similar amount of open space was these green fingers. That, and that, that meant that in order to hit the density targets, in order to get the, uh, the economic return, uh, a second generation of very big multi-story is required, in fact, bigger than what was there before. Um, so I'm sorry that everything isn't awesome quite yet. Though as I, I, I have seen the new plans, and they are much better than what was being planned five years ago. So that's good news. So here's what we should do. Um, we should end the regulatory bias. I've talked about that already. Um, not many changes to the current London Housing Design Guide would make it much easier to build conventional houses. Um, I'm, not, I'm still trying to get what percentage of people in London have mobility issues. Um, I'm not managed to get the figure. 16, just over 16% of people in London have some sort of disability issue. But that includes you know, anyone. So my, you know, one of my children is disabled, but he doesn't have a mobility issue. Um, it must be ludicrous to gold plate national standards. London has the... Uh, the lifetime home standards were initially designed about 25 years ago for suburban and rural areas. At a national level, they are not required, because it's regarded as not sensible, for 100% of new build. London is the one part, I think the one part of the UK, where it is required for 100% of new build, which is a decision that has been made at the GLA level and it could be unmade. Um, the consequence is that we cannot build in a street at the density I'd argue we require. Um, we're also suggesting, and indeed uh, the budget uh, picked up on, uh, a long-term loan uh, which requires a very high level of community involvement beyond actually even the type of com community engagement that is uh, typical now but real neighbourhood planning bottom-up um, to, to drive state regeneration and that access to essentially near free money uh, from the government or from the other bodies because you can match fund it from, uh, from third sector funders and we're trying to talk to various third sector funders on exactly this should require that so we're actually, and this is why I'm very much not coming to giving a case study, we're trying to change the terms of debate here. We're trying to make it absolutely necessary to engage the local community to a degree and with a density and a reality that actually is very rare, I think, at the moment. Um, and with a focus on what happens economically over 30 years, over 50 years, not over three years or over five years. Uh, because then you build what people most want, not what you can get away with. Um, we're also suggesting, this is, this is more tenuous, this is a... This is a just uh, to just drop some ideas into the debate. I don't know, and uh, again, I'm going to push to Patrick, are any of you familiar with the idea of a social impact bond? Excellent. Well, I apologise, no one else is, so you're going to get some stuff you do know. Um, so th what this basically is, um, some, you know, there are some rich people in this world. Some of them are very happy to give large amounts of money to charity, others aren't. Social impact bond says, look, if you've got all this ban personal balance sheet, why not make an investment? You get, your, you get your capital back, and if you're lucky, you're going to get some, some income from it as well. But why not make an investment in something that leads to a social good outcome and thus saves the government money? That's a social impact bond. You put the money in, and if it works, you get your capital back, but you also, uh, you also get a return on it. Because the government says, hang on, you've done these good things, that is meaning I'm not having to pay this welfare, or I'm getting more tax take, or I'm not having to put this person in prison. That is saving the government money, I can measure that, I therefore give you some money back. So it's a way, if you like, of accessing other flows of generosity that you couldn't otherwise access. It's also a good way, actually, to make social investors and public bodies and charities think very hard about good outcomes and how it's measured. So it's something that we in Crow Street are very, very interested in. What we're suggesting, and forgive me, this is, uh, come back to that, I'll just say here. Um, 
Because we know, admittedly from largely historical data, because we know that you can measure good social outcomes in a way that is statistically correlated with living in smaller buildings nearer the ground, and we know that some of those lead to saving this to the government, what we're suggesting, we're suggesting it to some people who do social impact bonds and also to the GLA, um, is create a social impact bond for estate regeneration. It couldn't pay for the whole thing, but it could provide extra financing to make it easier to perhaps have a slightly lower density than you might otherwise do, or to think really hard about good design and connectivity um, and not having too many uh, front doors off the same stairwell. Um, this is just some notional numbers we've worked up. We don't pretend these are robust, but notionally, we could very easily, literally just finding data that was readily available without doing any more complex modelling, we could easily offer pop adult population of 4,250 with a, an assumed 25% uh, number of uh, children on top, which is the London average, we could easily find a net present value of £12 million uh, from better social outcomes, from things, if you like, that are consistently measured with, uh, uh, with living in houses or in living in smaller buildings, i.e., um, above all, uh, better he well, the, the health is quite hard to measure, um, families staying together, children doing better, uh, lower crime, that's very easy to put a number on, um, and people going into jobs are very easy to put numbers on. Uh, the ones with jobs, unfortunately, the, the links then back to the, uh, to the, to the housing typologies is the least robust, but that's what we're very keen to get into. So we're trying to push that idea now um, to try and get a social investor to think, actually, I really care about what we do with Bits of London, and I really want to put in a, a piloted social investment to get uh, the GLA, local authorities, architects, urban planners really thinking hard about what type of built environment is one in which families and people do best in. I think, I'll do one thing sometimes we're just starting to do. So I've, we put together over the last, um, mainly over Christmas actually, but over the last couple of months, um, we've tried to put together a tool where we pull together all the data we've managed to find from any source in this country or elsewhere on things that are connected with good outcomes. Um, uh, high connectivity, uh, not too much semi-public space. Uh, buildings can be high, but only if you've got richer people in them and, and no kids. Uh, not too many large units. Um, some degree of private, you know, maximised degree of private open space. You're never going to get a maximum amount in central London. Um, this is something I don't talk about, but it is true, just a fact, that most people prefer more conventionally designed buildings and they go up in value higher. Um, and then density, where you've got an optimization. You don't want to go too low, but you don't want to go too high. So we're trying to take the data points we can and then devise a method. It's still a beta for scoring. Oh, God, that is unreadable. I'm sorry. Um, for scoring different developments or different bits of London. It is a beta. It is not perfect. I don't pretend that it is. But just to give you an example, one I referred to earlier, just because it's easy. Um, so we've tried to score Pimlico. And the reason it falls down, I get 75%. This is all rebased to 100. The reason it falls down a bit is actually you've got a higher number of children in flats away from the ground floor than you'd ideally want. That's why it falls down. And we scored Aylesbury, um, which does almost comically badly at 19%. Um, we've just done, and I can't show it to you, we've, we've actually literally uh, just finished our first commercial use of this quite recently, where we were helping a developer on an estate in southwest London. Um, uh, and they, that, that estate, which was a late 50s, early 60s, uh, series of blocks, 
it's called 32%, and the two, they're actually making a decision now as to which of two different schemes they put in. Um, I can tell you the numbers if I don't tell you where it is. Um, and one got 55% and the other got 62%. Um, the economics are quite similar, so hopefully actually we'll be helping them make a decision on what to do. We're about to do it for a second time on, a, on another uh, development that we haven't done that yet. So that's what we're trying to do, to try and take some of this data to help designers, architects, and above all, perhaps developers, think about what they do and what the long-term correlations will be, both with value appreciation, but also with good social outcome. And I think, I think you've, you've seen me out. Thank you very much for listening.